0: This event was recorded at the 2018 Edinburgh International Book Festival.
1: Well, good afternoon everybody, and a very warm welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival and to the Spiegel Tent. Um, It is my very great pleasure to be chairing Sean Borrowdale and Ruth Piddell this afternoon. Um, I will introduce the poets, they will then both read, and then we will have a little chat and then there'll be time for audience questions. After the event, there will be a signing. We'll be in the main signing tent, and we will be going straight over there, so you can sort of follow us um, if you're not sure where that is. So, I am delighted to introduce Ruth Fidel and Sean Borodell. Sean Borodell was born in London and works as a poet and artist. His first collection of poetry, *B Journal, was shortlisted for the 2012 Aldborough First Collection Prize, the Costa Poetry Book Award, and the T.S. Eliot Prize. In 2014, he was selected as one of 20 next-generation poets. And Ruth Padell, who is Fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and the Zoological Society of London and Professor of Poetry at King's College London, Emerald is her 11th collection. And first, we have the pleasure of hearing from Sean's latest collection, Asylum. Thank you, Sean. Thank you.
2: I think that's there. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. okay. Um, well, it's a great pleasure to be here, and um, there's something actually about being in this whole of this carousel of mirrors, which um, I was thinking about photography before this um, earlier today, because um, asylum is about going into, into the ground, into the mouths of caves and swallows, and into darkness, and there's an, an analogy or a metaphor for me in, in uh, the process of writing in that in the, the sort of voice is a little like a camera, camera obscura and caves uh, put this into the negative <clears throat> rather than giving issue to something, uh, they, they sort of swallow something. Um, and uh, much of this, this um, collection is about what happens to voice uh, or what, what um, happens to the disappearance of voice. Inside spaces that, that contain and distort, and and also uh, because of the acoustic nature of um, caves that offset the voice, so the experience of speech is somehow off center um, and and slightly out of body. One of the um, the the guides to this this book is um, Sophocles' Oedipus at Colonus. Um, the uh, his, uh, not his last play necessarily but it was performed for the first time after his death and it's the play in which Sophocles returns to his own birthplace, Columnus, just to the north of Athens and, um, and casts the myth of Oedipus um, in that context of return to somewhere that is somehow sacred and contains the furies, the energies of the underground but also contains the fissure the brazen threshold into which Oedipus steps or disappears and that brazen threshold is for me at least the threshold of authorship and, um, and that commitment um, that, that comes from a process of often derangement and um, destruction and uh, excommunication in many ways uh, and, and possibly pollution so I'll leave you with that image, um, and make a descent. Uh, this is a rehearsal of Saint Cuthbert's swallow. I was grounded on this one by my my uh, youngest son, who said, "Well, if it's a rehearsal, what's it a rehearsal for?" Uh, but I couldn't give him an answer for that. It's a rehearsal in a way for itself, if, if it were ever to become something. Uh, and that's what these are. They're they're sight tests in a way. I saw it a bit, little bit like Grotowski's um, theatre experiment. Uh, where actors were performing to to their own spaces and to their own bodies. Um, So in in that sense, this is um, a constant set of rehearsals. What is this odd sensation? Why do I feel more invisible, mere memory as I dip under stone? Having entered the swallet, having dammed up the stream, how do I blind my way in and touch, bridge my way down with knees on one side. Isn't this odd? Heels pressing the vertical dark, going down out of attention. From the thin world of the bubble of air, the gleaming skulls sutures its crown whispering. Why do I feel more dark? Out of the sight of any bird, the sounds also Why do I prevail in emptiness, cut from the tension of speed and appetite, carrying this odd death with me down, under roads like spears scattered across miles? Why do I have to forget what I love, carrying its core in an urn of sound? Why do I have to go on, slithering out of the lit anthracene like this? To slough off the sun, its cadence of distance. With my hunt for the answers, my lit skin, all it is now, the last collapsed tunnel. Why am I buried in close-fitting rock? Am I insured? I may have forgotten. <coughs> Having made the descent, uh, or the rehearsal of a descent. <coughs> Not all the poems are written under the ground, but in a sense, I, I imagine the uh, the Mendip landscape with this is, is a set. It's the um, the, the ridge, uh, li- largely limestone, that runs east-west, about 20 miles south of Bristol, and in the east side are um, coal fields, and in the west, the karst landscape that falls into the Bristol Channel, hence the caves. But some of the uh, the descents are are descents of voice into the impermeable into the ground at sites of burial or um, darkness or or industrial uh, um, or even pre-industrial extraction this is um, the voice of an archaeologist pretty nine maidens which is a a, like a spine of maidens uh, of of barrows to weave responses into when the wind blows and the voice starts up. I come to lament. My words trail off into low, hushed statements at the verge of sound. Earthen the mound, burial, pregnant, as she of contents exposed. I feel a wreck. Maybe she died in childbirth and the pelvis had been removed with the fetus beads of amber, faience, jet, shale a copper all a kind of dress fastening a woman today this who excavated the richest burial on the mendip under bleak wind she speaks into soil it came from our voices blowing this way between the outposts of our working, scraping back air, seeing the scarred detail in relief and we surmised turfs from outlying regions, I feel a wreck. Is that the transparency of people? Is that them now taking a part in the burial, bringing the sods far off on the wind line cutting this way? There's another woman who was uh, several thousand years ago buried um, as a small um, um, with the remains of a cremation and then excavated um, obviously much more recently and um, the ashes were taken out of the beaker, the beaker remains in a museum archive in the southwest a replica beaker was made and the ashes put into that and the bone fragments and then some of the field assistants decided to reinter her and created a ceremony and this is um, a, just a bit of time spent. These, these are, in a way, their exposures. A little like photographs, hence mentioning the photograph, that they're, they're exposures of time with places. And, and the voice, in a way, is the, the chemistry. They put her in the ground where white moths complicate the evening, under trees where it is dark. They might have murdered her. There is little mercy in the syndrome of the living her indented present, airless, mothless, a small hovel inside the self, eastwater cavern. Nothing has come here that is more than flicker, that has not brought the bright hurt language of its sun. It took this stalactite longer to grow than any nation, a hatch into the unlit under rooms, under fields, Like dry leaves in a hole, bits of me sit. An odd interior taxidermy, dead space, or space so slowly living it does not seed time, but an assailing language that assails me like falling water, a discipline of decline. There are two um, kind of a sort of mirroring poems in the middle. One is, a, is a, um, an omission of a site or, or a, a small lump of industrial waste, a piece of vitreous slag from Roman uh, lead smelting and then later Roman and then um, 19th century uh, reprocessing of that material. And, um, and the other is, um, is a calling to a site addressing a small piece of vitreous slag which gives off a feeling Charterhouse lead works The road here is of black glass still heavy with weight We are sloping down now into the drag of cold Slag heap shifting and stressed and chinked obsidian likeness What is your name? Who are you? What is your sound? This could be a woman's glass cup picking it up the wine of her sanctuary I would drink this moment down into my own black path through black rubble and so on into the thin crack of a room One figure to the other bows, bows its head delves into the other's dim reflection She has gone now, into my plane of vision, which is like half a black leaf of glass. Now your turn, as I anchor my cup with the weight of slag, the leaden slight glimmer, and the other, you with your just oozed glass arms, takes and drinks, door-slammed judder. This is our aven, a gap between huge blocks a mutual lost voice going down like bodies into the very deep remnants of echoes I hold the cast of a throat a sort of vitreous glass made of a gulp and it's inverse in a way, archaeology benchwork calling the barrow near coal pit lane to signal I have come searching I have come looking for your bone, your provenance, I have come searching today scours of surface what I look for does not reveal more than horizons grim lines beautifully etched scoured, light searing above shadows all feels inconsequential this ladybird staggering at low volume into crumbs this grass shadow beached on dust I know no silence like the stone it seeps inside its volume cuboid black voids of rock what I search for is the memory and oblivion of what I search for a mineral emotion bound in with what is bound in you in your grave layers not suffering but very steadily introverted like you I am in a room Starved of light, closer to fury, starved like the collapsed stoop of your throat, waiting for effort to be superseded, grace to be given. Sometimes it is the dead of night, but no night exists, nothing disturbs me. Absence, I miss it, we have no absence. I'm going to... move forward to um, there are four choruses in here and the choruses in a way uh, they're, they're almost like the, um, the way that water percolates through limestone and then hangs and drips and then drops every so often and draws in a, in a way the minerals from other, other parts of the book um, and I'll find, find one to give you a hearing Aveline's Hole I set them in four, four significant Places. One of these is Avaline's Hole, which was um, discovered in 1797 by uh, two men rabbiting. And I think about 10 days later, Robert Sully visited uh, this cave, which was by then opened. And what it contained was a Mesolithic uh, cemetery with between 50 and, and maybe 100, 200 even some estimates, bodies laid out in rows on the cave earth. And so the mouth of this cave is, is a very significant moment in, in archaeology. Of course, all of that is lost now because it was given away as souvenirs and then badly excavated. But it's a mouth. Avaline's Hole. The red paste earth, almost acoustic, pressing the voice back into the blackness of the throat. The red paste earth, almost acoustic, pressing the voice back into the blackness of the throat the red paced earth almost acoustic pressing the voice back into the blackness of the throat under weights of oblivion along tunnels of streams trickles in the blood soaked iron taste I will drink when I am cold under weights of oblivion along tunnels of streams trickles in the blood-soaked iron taste I will drink when I am cold under weights of oblivion along tunnels of streams trickles in the blood-soaked iron taste I will drink when I am cold Sump One is that uh, setting for that which is at the bottom of Swilden's Hole it's the last point you can you can go before you have to dive and I'll finish with this, which is Soil and Subsoil, Cockle's Field. I've saved you the long rope-like poem that goes on probably for about eight minutes, um, which is not a, a good place to be. What did I dig for which are not the dreams I will get? I am so cold, I have to dig the sodden staining of a century in the black felt of twenty dialects which are dead only in upper spaces. Here they still thrive, small, congesting bodies in organic silt many would have dredged for a second coming. I cannot adhere to the surface country but will go into blacker reaches of area attempting illumination of another order without geography. Under the weight of oblivion, Along tunnels of streams, trickles, in the blood-soaked iron taste I will drink when I am cold without myself Will not feel the frost freezing my hair stiff But be below the frost's liturgy of scrap metal, its water shrapnel Will loiter nameless waiting for the whole to absorb me Bury me, I will say, with my fish skeleton eyes, my wasting jaws My cold patience prevalent, losing the battle by the black pond beyond the pond edge, below the porous swarming of matter, under the frog's gelatinous clotting of its eggs, which is all an eye and another eye staring inwardly where there is no light, will contrive to be lifeless under dead leaf, root shake, under creatures pausing in earth to hear, or be like the mole, antisocial in sinews of machinery digging depths under fur where all is shallow, where all is deep too. Thank you.
0: Jaipur, I can't go to India, I said, with you in this state Don't be silly. How can I go to Rajasthan through fog-bound Delhi, a six-hour change of plane with an exploding aneurysm hanging like the sword of Damocles in your back? She argued, insisted she would be okay, and sent me off. But how did I know I'd see her again in the chaotic traffic of Jaipur, Taxis on strike. Taking an auto rickshaw to the old bazaar. Pink walled alleys. Color of embers in a fading sky. Filling up with motorbikes. Electric cables. Open drawers of second hand CDs. A hanging alphabet of export surplus shirts. And rhesus macaques. Running over red tiled roofs in rubber masks. By the Poston to the emerald dealer's yard. A baby monkey slid down a lamppost like a fireman, dashed across the street. She'd have cheered him on. The cutter, in his tucked away white desk with a fluoride swing light, emeralds, he said, are all about light, had a milky eye like a moonstone. Something wrong since birth. He took linen pouches of raw gems out of hidden panels in the wall and poured them in my hand, while the dealer told the jewel story of his town, owners, brokers, the old Jane trading cartasts, and emerald cutters. Most of them Muslim, for hope can be found the other side of pain, green is the color of paradise. And for 500 years, the Mughal emperors ordered enormous crystals up from obscure shafts beneath the carbon heart of Andes. Pink City became Emerald City, adept in the unique cutting properties of emerald, the only stone in which the flaws are prized. She was right, of course. Still here when I got back to northern winter, early snowdrops, steel wool skies, the sun invisible, burning somewhere else, Jaipur, and everyone anxious, shaky as a bubble in a carpenter's level, signs taken for wonders, one hand upon the door. So it's very nice to be here again, and lovely to hear Sean read, and very nice, thank you, for the introduction. This book is about my mother's death, and it's about her character. Um, one reviewer said she's, she emerges as a jagged, charming character, and jagged was certainly one word for it. So um, this, this is, um, she'd have loved being here. She didn't come to many poetry readings but the first one she ever came to I dragged her to and for my first book I think and she said afterwards I see the point of poets now. They notice things. <laughs> she was a biologist. Okay, so this, this poem is called She Liked a Laugh. She hated pink. You oh, shouldn't be wearing this. <laughs> Sorry, I'll start again. She hated pink hydrangeas pan, woolly thinking, and pretense. She stuck to plain tap water, wouldn't have any truck with perrier, superstition, bling. She believed in hard fact, how and why, the daily crossword, jokes, Latin names of plants, comedy on TV, and going on when eyes and ears and muscles failed, setting her alarm for 8 a.m., even when the last nerve ends in her fingers withered. So she took an hour, alone, refusing help to do up zips and buttons. What if I'd said one evening, lighting the lamp, cooking dinner while she took in the weather forecast, I believe that emeralds come from planet Venus, are found in nests of griffins, emit the energy of Saturn, reveal the truth when placed under the tongue, and their powers are spiritual balance, wisdom, love, the reawakening of spring. I can just see the grin. Oh, Ruth! So, um, the next poem is, is, um, takes about five minutes, and it's about the emerald tablet. So this is um, uh, an imaginary tablet. There is a text which begins, above is the same as below. And it was supposed, well, you'll hear about it in the, in the poem. Um, so the, I, was, I was writing about emeralds. I was researching emeralds when my mom started to die. And so she sort of hijacked the whole enterprise and um, she then sort of stopped for three weeks so everybody could say goodbye to her. So she was very lucky and we were very lucky, really. Um, and it was a sort of, um, we, we were all there when she died. Um, and she was able to talk to a lot of people beforehand. So I think in some ways she rather enjoyed it. She was, you know, she, she saw a lot of people and we had a lot of laughs um, but afterwards, of course, is the, is the sort of totally directionless moment. So this is me in New York after she died um, and discovering that I, although New York is a grid plan, I cannot find my way around a sort of totally geometric place. I got just completely disoriented. The Emerald Tablet. This is to do with being lost, with believing that the truth is buried in some special place Difficult to find. And a hero of ancient wisdom, Moses, Borgias, Gandalf, that stern but kind oracle-giving grandfather you never had, will pop out of the green, out of the woodwork, to reveal it. Encrypted on a slab of emerald by the king of a forgotten world, in exquisite base-relief lettering, similar to the earliest Phoenician script. It will contain formulae for an antique magic going back to early Egypt, transparent in our world as a flame in daylight, but still with power to burn. And will tell you that what is inward, buried in earth, in flesh, and in your mind, is also the bright surface of the world outside and is divine. It will start by saying, above is the same as below. Meaning, I think, our loneliness is not alone. And will go on to say that spirit does not, as we have been told, keep trying to peel away from atoms of our body, but is embedded in nature. And you yourself are the crucible in which base metal can be turned to gold. This is to do with transformation, with the dead and where they are inside you once they're gone. Above is the same as below. I have set up a headshot of my mum by the kettle in a wooden frame. I meet her eyes in the half light as I make coffee and keep her with me as I trickle down the black iron nerve of a station I don't understand. I've lost my mobile phone with its mysteriously living map. The blue pulsar of identity has disappeared and the crossover on my little fold-out guide is scuffed, torn, unreadable, exactly where I was hoping to go. Where do you start? Faced with the shadow of these half-moon globes on their slender pistachio columns, marking descent to the subway, to recover that peeling of bells you'd taken for granted when someone who really knows you gets it. One sleepless night after the funeral, I saw for sale on the net an emerald tablet keyring made in Seville, a resin replica of what it might have looked like, verified by the International Guild of Alchemists. I sent off for one, but the resin feels like soapy biscuit and the mystic marks mean nothing. Who knows what it looked like anyway? All we have, all we ever have, are words. They say Balinus the Wise discovered it 1300 years ago. He entered a cave in Sri Lanka, found a statue of Hermes, god of dreams, climbed down to a vault beneath saw an old man sitting on a throne, cradling a tablet glowing in the dark like creme de menthe, mistletoe on a winter bough, and recorded what it said in Arabic. Jung saw it, too, in his dream of the unconscious as a shimmering table of green stone, at which he sat alone in an Italian loggia above white rocks and a sapphire lagoon, that giddy, sunlit place where we all might feel in touch with what is deepest in us, longing, as we do, for the adept who will see our truth and not be appalled, who will transform the writing in our own cave to a magic formula for us to live by now. We are all trying, in our way, to understand secrets of nature, secrets of the soul, why are we talking of the end of the world? We've met, as arranged, in the glass hall of a library full of light, and talk of the lure of hidden knowledge. Over salad and linguine, all the animals of the wilderness, the shy white helleborean orchid, and the hidden paths to and from the cedar forest, mourn with the backward grace of a cry from the broken open heart for all our mothers. This is your journey, no one else's. Your passage through love, friendship, grief, is and will go on being a perpetual process. Touch the threshold from days of your childhood. Climb the worn stairway to the terrace of York stone patched with rosemary tortuosa and blue thyme. Walk the parapet, your hair blowing in the wind and study the foundations laid by the seven sages, remember? Enter the temple, the sanctum, unveil the box, unlatch the bronze lock, untie the silk cord above the hidden opening and take out a tablet of emerald that tells of trials you endured. The flowering orchards and towering ziggurats say, this is you, this is what you have made of yourself so far. You quested to boundaries of earth for the meaning of life and found it in your own backyard. The tablet says you will emerge in a magical garden by the sea and enter the tavern of loss which is also the moment of truth. So this book zigzags around her memories and, and the process of grieving grieving in a way. And I suppose Green is partly because she was a naturalist and she, so I was exploring the nature of Green really. But this is, um, this is a beach photograph. And it also contains the only two commas in the, in the book. The rest of it is done with breath and um, with space. Gory Bay, Jersey, 1933, in sepia, sunbonnet, bleached, tartan shorts, standing in a wet Vesuvius of rilling sea and sand. She is an explorer at the summit of a mountain, leaning on a nobbled spade. She did tell me once she went to Jersey, saw cabbages so huge, the villagers like mythical inhabitants on a medieval map at the edge of the known world, used the stalks for walking sticks. She's a chorus girl putting forward a long bare leg with the tide coming in all round her, a flood of lapping glass set to wreck that sandcastle any minute. She is 14, her face in shadow, gazing, smiling at someone along the beach. Yes, when your mother dies, you lose the key to so many neural pathways. You had it in your hand, and now will never know where it fits the Mapa Mundi of her life. But when, last year, I found this photo in a box under the bed, she said, nice legs, wish I'd had legs like that. You did, that's you. She didn't believe it. And I can't believe she isn't here to show her this again. Well, I'll finish with a, another long poem. It's uh, whoever put us, Sean and me together, was, was very clairvoyant or read very carefully. I don't know if it was you. Um, but because um, uh, uh, there are a lot of echoes, and this, this is a, a descent to the underworld. And. Um, and there's a lot about, well, there's a lot of, a lot of you'll hear them. Um, but it's called Salon Noir, which is, in, um, which is a prehistoric cave. I'd never been, last year, I, I'd never been to one of these painted caves um, uh, just after the end of the Ice Age. And then I heard we were very near one, so we went. And I went with dear friends, one of whom I've known for 35 years, one of whom had recently lost her husband, and I think that's important too. And we were, it was, you'll hear about it. But afterwards, I sat down and wrote it um, when I got back, and my, I sent it to my daughter in, in Colombia, and and she said, "That's a catapasis. that's a descent to the underworld," and I've written about this, but I had not realised I was doing it, and it's it's extraordinary how it, it just sort of came out. But it is, it's a descent to the underworld, Salon Noir. When we went down into the cave this summer. After her death had opened the vein to a year of reckoning across the whole family, everyone upset, both of them dead within six hours on the same night, a hundred miles apart. My mother and my aunt, her sister-in-law, our gentle, daring painter, whose children were rushing her in an ambulance from the room upstairs in the family house where I was born to a London hospital just when, for us, it was all over. We were each a little afraid, also unprepared. The young, apparently, were thinking of vampires. For me, it was breaking an ankle. Take nothing, said the guide, a girl from the green hills of the Ariège who knew every centimetre of the caves. Leave behind all bags and mobile phones. You're not allowed to take pictures and you'll need your hands. The path is slippery, broken, rough. You'll have to crouch. You'll be carrying a heavy torch, but don't touch the walls if you stumble. Even your breath does a little destroying. Our flashlights in the tunnel showed dangerous ridges underfoot wild knobs of embryonic mites glistened like sea anemones. Beware, they said to our stout shoes, we have time. We are time, the texture itself. The floor of the first chamber swirled like quivers in the structure of a raga. We were treading limestone waves, millennia of solid flood breathing shallow as we could. Then dark blistered stone and pure geological process closed in, personal, inexorable. The walls swirled too and I stopped to play a beam upon them in the dark. Rough surfaces, map shapes of amber, russet, grey and all around us, black. No ceramics. No shards of biscuity pottery we might piece together into a cup touched by their lips 15,000 years ago. This was origin way before any potter. So many ways to begin. I heard the hiss of time, like the swish of tires on a wet road, as we faltered along, bowed our heads, felt the blowing of solar winds and the need for fire, like the start cry of a race. We slipped down a chimney of slime, a tunnel opened out to the salon noir, and we saw the first human trace, red stripes and black, vertical signs like sleep marks on skin, a key shape, an arrow. We turned off our heavy torches and laid them down in violet night on a bridge of rock so our guide could shine her power lamp of snowy halogen alone. And we saw bison flickering the black circles of their eyes, rippling on cream stone as if over a canvas of the mind. I thought of Freud, how the unconscious is constructed geologically by pressure, a kind of archeological layering under the soul, inaccessible except in dreams. Horses appeared, the tissue of their manes clear against gray rock, every tuft erect, scribble shaggy, bolshy, necks stretched out, eyes closed, mealy muzzled as an Exmoor pony, a whole wall of horses on prehistoric limestone like a page of Leonardo's sketchbook. Whoever drew them had no idea they would come to be our partners, change human work, ambition, history. But I felt at home Here were the horses my mum used to draw for me, till I could draw my own. In that milk flower ray of fluorine, these beasts, called down to the dark from valleys above, seemed to move, as they must have done then for the very first time in a pitch flare held by the artist. While we took it all in, the delicate expressions, the questioning back turned nose of an ibex, the flaring nostril and lifted tail of one bison challenging another. I felt my mother's greatest gift to me was noticing. She taught us to be curious, to wonder at all animal life, however small, the territory fights of a chaffinch, fox cubs creeping out at night, their skirmishes with cats. Snails, she murmured once, at a TV program on invertebrates. Who would have thought a snail could be so tender? The guide asked if anyone would sing. The Salon Noir, she said, is only one of many caves. We wonder if the artists over the centuries chose this chamber for the acoustic, resonant as a cathedral. Try. I wondered If an echo might set off an avalanche and the whole cave system, the cracked mysterious maps of hollow stone would crash, bury us under the mountain. But the notes when they came in that black air were a flow of prayer, a thread of unearthly melody, like the deep space vibrato of a theremin, surely not from my throat. Our guide followed my song upward with her torch. A wingbone of white light floating into tiered pinnacles and funnels of jagged stone as if lifting us on feathers of pure sound to the point where all sound disappeared I imagined the voice of Orpheus his aria to life and hope ringing out in the kingdom of the dead here in deep earth the black blossom of morning still sifting within me I remembered that emerald was my birthstone, that an emerald, mined in the dark, but loosened green as leaves returning, returning after a 100,000 years of ice, green for awakening, for bringing life back from the dead, renewal in Earth and of the Earth, is a token of rebirth. I pictured the attic room where I was born, in that enchanted house none of us will enter again, where my mother gave birth to me in May, the first of five. Six, if you count, the baby that died. I heard a trickle of water over rock, like buried tears. And in this cave of making, birth of transformation and of art, I understood how anyone in darkness longs for green, for the animal life which goes with green and which, like faceted crystal, light in stone, lets us see the impossible, our own lives with their faults and wounds in a different way. And how the very idea of one gem for our birth might make us try to say the story of ourselves with a whole heart, to carry the true good burden of being known, even by animal eyes, and not alone. Like the singer who drew all life towards him and went down into the dark, taking his art into the earth. And art takes him up to the light again, renewed. We came back changed, We saw black rock jagged round the entrance, the golden eye of afternoon. Those who came before, the dancers, the mothers, were gone into the hill, but the mountains rising one behind the other were herds of green bison drifting away into the sky.
1: Thank you so much, Sean, and thank you so much, Ruth. Um, so I'm afraid I can't take uh, credit for the programming, but it is such an incredible pairing. Um, mm-hmm. the, there's resonance throughout these collections, and I so enjoyed reading them together. And I wanted to ask a question to both of you, really, about um, about articulation in in the depths, because you have several poems in which you... Descend. Um, Salon Noir is the one where there is the wonderful moment, of course, of singing. And um, so much of your work is about speaking into earth and into darkness and what happens to the voice. And I, I wondered if you could both expand a little bit on um, the acoustics of the underworld, if you will.
0: Well, it was, I mean, I suppose we could start with Echo. <laughs> the, yeah.
1: Um,
0: <coughs> do you know Echo was the, was the name of Bob Dylan's first girlfriend? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's really, really interesting. God knows how that happened. Um, but, um, uh, you know, she's there in the cave and you pour your voice into it, but she comes back at you. And there's a wonderful poem, you know, which I'm sure you all know, by Seamus by Heaney, per- personal Helicon, when he's talking about how he loved Wells as a child and the sense that you... I mean, Sean was talking about voice and the sort of drip through things and the, the threshold of... I suppose of self and other, voice and silence, the voice that comes back to you. Mm. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, I mentioned um, at the beginning the, the offsetting of the voice. I think it's the other thing, that your own bearings change because your bearing is your voice, in a sense. So by entering a cave or a, or a confined space or an altered space, a void of some kind, you, you cast out. And by doing so, you, you set yourself off bearings. And that gives a kind of difference, so you you end up with a set of coordinates almost. So it, it gives you a a voice place. Yeah. It become you become conscious of being the voice. You almost lose aspects of the body
1: mm-hmm. in that way. A sort of echolocation hmm. underground. And hmm. um, so both of the collections um, deal with time, I think, in very interesting ways, and in a way a sort of um, in opposite ways because. Um, your collection, Ruth um, Emerald, deals with kind of memories of your mother, but also her kind of last weeks being alive. And Sean, you deal with kind of archaeological time, and you have a wonderful poem about a fern fossil, the idea of, ta- of fossil as a sort of form of flattened time, mm. time as a compressing force. Um, and I wonder if you could both talk a little bit about the way in which time acts as a force through the collections.
2: Mm. Yeah, I'm trying
1: to get my bearings in <laughs> yeah, very very um, interesting questions.
0: Hmm. Um, well, I suppose what comes first to mind is that when you're writing a poem, you're aware of time. You're speaking time. You're, a poem is heard in time. Mm. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and you know, for me, I was I was experimenting with doing spaces in the words, um, so that it was almost a sort of musical yeah. um, uh, thing. Um, and I was, you know, my mum died at ninety-seven, mm. so I was aware of her her sense of time and her her long life. Um, the first time I read from this book, actually, I was reading with some with some, Kayo who whose mother died when he was sixteen or eighteen or something, and he he's he just he didn't know w- what my book was about, but he it wasn't written yet, but it, um, he said. I always wonder what it's like if you've grown up for a long time having your parents with you, because I lost my, my very early. And I thought that's really interesting. I mean, it's very sad that you lost them so early, but mm-hmm. it's also, you become a different person. Um, you you know, I, I, I can't remember a time when, you know, my mother wasn't there on the end of a phone. So there's a, there's a sense of time lived, mm-hmm. time truncated, time syncopated, and time future. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: yeah.
2: I was thinking of, um, well there's one aspect for me, I mentioned the theatre um, of, of authorship, of voice, of writing and, and there's something about entering the cave which, which makes that, very, that, that analogy very concrete which is that when something enters a ritual theatre, say this glass is used in another context uh, within that performance, that it, it's taken out of the circulation of the everyday it becomes... Um, Again, it's, it's sort of the offsetting of the object, in a way, like the voices offset of describing caves. So there's that sense of being in other time. Yeah. Um, and, and I was reminded that with, the, with the, the, the poem The Commas, the photograph of your mother. And it reminded me of Rowan Bart's um, dwelling on his own in that beautiful um, essay on photography. Oh, yeah. Um, um, Candida Lucida, is that mm. something? I think that's the title. But the, the, the kind of focus of that is the photograph of his mother as a, as a young girl, which um, is an extraordinary fixture in all this because it's, it's time travel, but it's also something that's been out of circulation and then this has re arisen. So, in a sense, it's been excavated.
0: Yes. Well, that's certainly what I was doing I was pulling mm. it out from. I yeah. found all these photographs under her bed.
2: Mm. So, I, I think that, that sort of sense of time parallels. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And one of the things that um, I really, really enjoyed in both collections was the um, the archaeological or precious object that emerges from the ground. So, of course, you have the emerald as the running theme um, and this incredible um, journey that the emerald makes, of course, from the mine to the light. Um, and there's a beautiful uh, poem in which you describe it sort of blossoming out of the rock. And then, of course... One of the things I'm really drawn to in your collection is, uh, is all the bones, the way that bones emerge or don't mm. emerge because they've been given away and might mm. be reburied in time. Mm. And I wondered um, if, you, if you could perhaps talk a little bit about these objects and their ritual significance in, in the work?
2: Mm. Um, I just ha- for me, the, 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 as I began to immerse myself and in, in a sense, for short periods of time, bury myself, Yeah. Um, I became very conscious of that ground, that sort of volumetric um, space, time, being a kind of an archive, which is, um, because it was full of, and it is full of unknown objects, unknown signals in a way, yeah. as archaeologists might describe them, things of interest that, that have yet to be found. And I thought of... Um, Derrida's archive fever where he talks about, and Walter Benjamin also describes this, uh, of um, tokens for an unknown future yes. in Benjamin's words, but in Derrida's words it's, it's more to do with a bestowal, an act of love for an unknown future in, in depositing something mm. or bestowing it into the archive, which is in, in a sense an undefined community yeah. of sorts. It's a community that someone else will begin to define later. Uh, as you describe in your poem, you know, the artist, how could the artist have imagined that it might change huma- yeah. humanity yeah, mm. it, you know, or, or an artist's work later? Or, so there's that sense of, um, of reconfiguring something mm. without knowing how.
1: Yeah, mm. I, l- I love um, the idea of accidental trace, so what is placed mm. in the care but what is found and mm. what is lost mm. and the way that these things call to you in, in mm. the book. And I suppose emeralds um, have, uh, are um, directionally brought up, if you like, rather than the bones which are discovered. Hmm. There is something people seek for emeralds. Oh, mining for them. Yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, about, about your journey, even to just to Jaipur, to see the emeralds. I mean, I'm just... Okay, yes, you know, well, um, well, also
0: New York, I mean, I, I, mean I, I sort of started haunting natural history museums and... Um, for the, for the ge- geology rather than for the other for, uh, organic stuff. And um, emeralds are extraordinary. I mean, they were, you know, they were, it's also quite personal because my brother used to live in Jaipur and my daughter lives in Colombia where the finest emeralds come from and where the, um, there's a mine called Muzo, which was discovered, on, I think, 1535 by the Spaniards. Though, of course, the Indians have been using them for a long time, but as, as sacred objects. Yeah. Um, and then the Min- the Minion- Indians were were slave drivers, and they sent them down and got them to mine them themselves for money. Um, but um, then there are these stories about each individual diamond. You know, the biggest diamond in the world, and the most the biggest carved diamond in the world, and um, you know stories about how they were found and how they were lost and who had them and so on like that but there's also the sacred object of the emerald tablet and Mm. at at the end of that poem i was using the end of the epic of gilgamesh which you probably know and it was brought to my attention by somebody when i was going on about emeralds and it isn't actually an emerald tablet in the epic of gilgamesh it's i think it's sapphire or something but anyway he finds it and it is as it were his, the story of his, his story, his, his epic. Yeah. It's your life. It's rather like the end of the, well, you know, you find it in your own backyard. It's in his own palace. So I think, I don't know about a ritual, but it's a sense of discovery towards the end of your life about who you are after you've been through all this.
1: Yeah. And I, um, I think what is so wonderful about the emerald, as, as you say in one of the poems, it's, it's uh, flaws are prized yes. um, and that I think lends itself beautifully to the alchemical tablet and this form of sacred knowledge now I'm aware of the time so I think we have um, room perhaps for two very short questions from the audience um, so does anyone have a question for Sean let's start with this gentleman in the front row thank you
0: I to, uh, <coughs> try to be short uh, um, one thing that struck
2: me was that you know what you said about uh, voice is also about wasn't just voice; it was about all kinds of senses that were under pressure, and particularly the eyes. Mm. Um, I love that poem, uh, Felix Lad, the Lad poem. Uh, and similarly, I was thinking of your Carbon Labyrinth. Y-
0: yeah.
2: Um, mm. Both of which kind of use blindness, almost like darkness visible. That both of you were trying to paint what can be seen when nothing can be seen. Mm. and um, so I just wanted to ask you about that because uh, you've talked very much about voice and language and I see that all there, especially in that lad poem, but um, vision seems
0: to me equally yeah. Yeah. important. Well, it's, it's, very, it's very interesting that Sean was, was <coughs> bringing out the Oedipus at Colonus because one of the sort of big tropes of, of, of Greek thought really is that it's through darkness and blindness that you see light. Um, A lot of seers were blind, Tiresias, Calchas um, in in the Iliad, his name means dark. And so, and s- quite a lot of, of um, temples were, you know, they weren't those bare, I mean, I'm sure you all know, we'll, we'll know this, but they weren't those bare bones of white. They were filled in and they were dark and they were often protected so you could only go into them at certain times. And it, they must have stunk a bit and they must have been full of shadows. And it was in there that you would find the enlightenment. So enlightenment is found in the dark. And I suppose that's a, you know, that's a very, I, I was a classicist before I um, first, and I, and I suppose that, image in me is is very strong yeah very mm. interesting i mean oedipus blinds himself because he didn't see mm.
2: Mm. the the rex ladd poem is the one you've you know, so i've not read that one aloud, but it, it's um it's a, a poem in which i it started with an interview with a mining surveyor in somerset who was in his 80s and actually still working at that time in other parts of the country because the somerset mines closed in 1973 or six um but what, it, what struck me, and, and uh, there's, a, there's a very strong history of, of um, miners, uh, there's, there's uh, just before Orwell um, publishes uh, Wigan Pier, there's, uh, I think in 1930, a uh, Somerset Agitator, who had worked in the mines as a child, publishes a pamphlet about the experience of that and what that does to people to make them work as children. And for me, I was, because Rex Ladd started as a, as a boy, he went into the mines as, as a boy, and he's still alive today. Um, and it struck me that children were being schooled. You know, that was their education, it, it, you know, their sight was being removed in the way that you know, Sears and Oedipus blinding himself reaches another state of, of wisdom or vision or, or understanding. So that actually to be a child and to have that experience must, be a kind of, must create an extraordinary change. You know, that is your schooling. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, um, and children would describe, in, in, you know, if you go back a little further, they would spend six days out of seven underground and then in winter they would never see light. Oh. Because they would so yeah. so a life in darkness. So it's it's um, that sense of being schooled and of going into childhood, into that formative state where where the neurons are forming, where language is forming, um, for me was an extraordinary contact through this voice of Rex Ladd. Yeah.
1: Thank you. Um, In the interests of maintaining the flow of all of the events, um, I'm aware that we're slightly over time. So we are going to have a signing immediately afterwards. So if you do have a burning question, um, there will be a chance to ask it in the signing queue. Um, So please now join me in thanking Ruth and Sean for a fascinating hour. Thank you.